Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. So we're going to bring on Rafael Mangual shortly. He is fellow and head of research for the Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor for City Journal. We're going to go along with Rafael. He's got a new book out. It's on a topic that I personally care a heck of a lot about, which, of course, is the pushback against the so-called criminal justice reform agenda. So we're going to be really quick here in our opening remarks. I want to just quickly flag something that I was actually on Fox Business, on Maria Bartiromo's Fox Business show on Monday morning to talk about. And this was kind of the outlook for the midterm election. So I think for the past few months, the general consensus on the right and probably, frankly, for the intellectually honest parts of the political forecasting left have been the Republicans are gearing up for an, you know, an inevitable kind of sweeping of the midterms this fall. And the smart money continues to bet that Republicans will we will retake the House this fall. It's increasingly a little less obvious, at least in the minds of many, whether they are going to go ahead and retake the Senate this fall. In particular, it's, it's going to come down to a certain handful of races, in particular, probably the Georgia race between incumbent Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Up in Ohio, you have J.D. Vance versus Tim Ryan, Arizona, Blake Masters versus Mark Kelly. And in Nevada, you have Adam, Adam Laxalt against the incumbent, weak incumbent, Catherine Cortez Mastro. And a lot of folks are starting to look at this, and they're also looking at Joe Biden's approval ratings, which are slightly, slightly ticking up there. And they're starting to say that Republicans are no longer in good shape here to retake the midterms. And they're citing some specific polls that show Blake Masters down in Arizona or J.D. Vance neck and neck in Ohio, which increasingly looks like a very red state. And the point that I made on Maria's show on Fox Business on Monday morning was to push back about this and basically say, guys, let's get but let's, you know, let's try to refocus and contextualize everything that's going on here. I mean, Joe Biden's approval ratings maybe are ticking up a little bit. They're still really, really bad. They're still in the in the high 30s, maybe kind of, you know, uh, inching a little bit into the low 40s relative to kind of the low to mid 30s. That's still really bad. Yet inflation in July went down relative to inflation in June. The CPI annualized year over year average was still 8.5%. You know, a shockingly high percentage of Americans still have to go to the grocery checkout line and then return items back to the shelves because they find themselves unable to actually purchase it. I think it was roughly like two out of every five Americans has reported doing this, according to Eric Erickson Stubsack, if I remember what I read correctly. And I, I have to think that as Labor Day weekend approaches and Americans come back and they're back to school, they're back to work, they start paying attention to the news again. They start paying attention to those gas prices, those grocery prices. You know, the, the fundamentals, the political fundamentals, which ultimately matter a lot more than the actual race to race, horse race politics, the polls, the polls, the polls, the fundamentals here still continue to favor Republicans. And I personally, if I were a betting man, would bet that that pays off as far as what we see in the Senate this fall. But Let's take it to a quick commercial break. As we just teased, we'll be right back on the other side with Rafael Manguel. Stay with us. Hey, it's Kaylee. 
Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back. So as mentioned, thrilled to have this week, my friend Rafael Monguel on the podcast. He is the Nick Onhell Fellow and Head of Research for the Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor for MI's journal, City Journal. And of course, he is also the author of the brand new book, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Rafael, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thank you so, so much for having me, Josh. It's really a personal treat, actually, for me. I don't want to bolster your, your ego too much or anything, but I, I, I truly do think the work that you and some of your colleagues there, like Heather McDonald, do at MI and City Journal is truly indispensable. And I want to talk about your new book and really just all the various policies where I think you and some of your colleagues are just pushing us in the right direction against very difficult currents. But I kind of want to start a more personal question, actually. If I can, I, I think you and I kind of come from some similar backgrounds. We're both kind of lawyers by training, kind of came up through the Federal Society on campus universe. How did you get involved in kind of the the law and order police space, for lack of a better description? Yeah, it's, uh, I've, I've been giving this a lot more thought recently since I've been doing these interviews. So this is a question I get a lot. I mean, it wasn't something I really thought a ton about until I got to college. But, you know, my, my father was a, a police officer and a detective in the NYPD. And so I grew up around cops. I grew up, um, you know, the, the son of a cop and sort of having a an appreciation and um, I think inside look at what the sort of day-to-day life of an actual cop was. Um, and I kind of took it for granted. I didn't really think much about it. But when I got to college, that was when I started to see that there was this entire infrastructure built around the idea that, you know, that profession was evil and, um, you know, that it was racist and that it didn't actually work or produce safety. And so it was really like midway through college that I felt the urge to defend these ideas, which I had sort of intuitively understood um, to be wrong, but couldn't really, or I'm sorry, defend ideas I intuitively understood to be right against arguments that I, I understood to be wrong. And so that was when I really started, you know, kind of doing my own research. I, that's when I came across the work of the Manhattan Institute, people like Heather McDonald and George Kelling and James Q. Wilson. And that really opened up um, my mind. And that was around the same time that I kind of, you know, started getting into politics and and all those questions that were being hotly debated on my college campus. And I just knew I didn't fit in with the sort of standard left-wing crowd I was expected to fit in with. And so, you know, by the time I I gotten ready to graduate college, I was sort of, you know, uh, just engulfed in the work of people like Tom Sowell and, um, you know, John Stuart Mill and John Locke and, you know, um, had, had, you know, Hayek and had done a lot of that, that reading and, and kind of was already on that side. So when I got to law school, I, you know, the first thing I did when I got on campus was figure out where the Federalist Society office was and <laughs> went and signed up. And uh, as you know, I, I became president of the chapter and, you know, it, it, that experience was actually um, 
uh, one I'm, I'll always be grateful for because it, it really gave me a home inside of, of my my law school on campus. And, um, you know, it's an organization I, I stay involved with today. I continue to do, you know, FedSoc events on campuses and, you know, att- attend the uh, the lawyers conference every year. And it's it's always something I look forward to. I mean, I remember during my first year of law school when I was taking criminal law uh, back in the University of Chicago and I first encountered kind of this anti-police kind of decarceral, you know, the abolitionist rhetoric, right? I mean, that's kind of what I first encountered. And back then it seemed more fringe. I guess my, my, when I was taking criminal law back in 2013, 2014, but it's really no longer fringe. I mean, especially over the past few years with all the, you know, the Soros money, you know, you had a great piece of City Journal pushing back on George Soros's recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, where he kind of doubled down his defense of so-called reform prosecutors. But, you know, before there was Soros, this this argument was was already out there. Admittedly, it hadn't gained qu- the traction quite yet. What is kind of the the intellectual provenance, kind of like the starting point of some of like the modern kind of decarceral, really kind of prison abolition agenda? Where do you, where do you really kind of trace as to where all that got started? I, I would guess like the 1960s, something like that. Yeah, yeah, I would I would take it back to the 1960s, um, you know, uh, like black liberation movements this was you know uh, sort of a big part of that um a big part of the critique about our you know our our sort of racial history in this country and you know there there was actually a lot more to it back then right i mean in the 1960s in certain parts of the country the police actually were um you know operating as a force for oppression um and and so you know it's it's actually not crazy to me that we started to see those ideas pop up around then what what does seem to bug me is that over the period of time between the 60s and present day the arguments you know for abolition and kind of the more uh, extreme uh, sort of versions of of reform ideas have become much more mainstream over a period of time in which the system has actually operated uh, much fairer and much better and much more efficiently and equitably than it did way back then. I mean, you know, police use of force is a really good example of this. You know, in 1971, which is the year the NYPD started keeping track, I think they shot more than 220 people that year. Um, They killed almost 100. Uh, Now, I think the NYPD shoots maybe a dozen people in a given year, uh, you know, kills a handful. It's a major accomplishment, right? I mean, they're able to be effective, reduce crime significantly, and at the same time, reduce unnecessary force. Um, and yet that does not seem to at all be reflected in the tone or the rhetorical posture of our national debate right now. I mean, you, you know, in 2020, you had people chanting outside NYPD precincts, um, you know, uh, about no justice, no peace, and, you know, um, you know, no, uh, no cops, no KKK, no racist USA. I mean, you know, the, the, it's, it's almost as if it didn't happen, as if that that um, that improvement didn't happen. And so that that's been really, really strange, especially, you know, the last decade. But I mean, you're exactly right that these aren't really new ideas that that, you know, I'm pushing back on in the book. I mean, you know, one of my favorite books I read in this space that really helped form a lot of my thinking is James Q. Wilson's Thinking About Crime, which I think was first published in 1975. Um, back then he was pushing back on exactly the same argument. I mean, right. you know, you could have changed the date on that book to 2022 right. and it wouldn't have been any less relevant. Um, and so, you know, these aren't particularly new ideas. I do think they kind of trace back to the 1960s. Um, you know, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, you know, the, what, what's really, really strange to me is that they have gained so much traction, 
um, and been associated with so much harm, right? I mean, like, you know, take the the sort of reform prosecutor idea. I mean, you know, Kim Fox, Larry Krasner, Marilyn Mosby. Um, I mean, I just can't think of jurisdictions that aren't worse off right. um, since they've they've elected so-called progressive prosecutors. And and yet, you know, outside of Chesa Boudin being recalled, which I think was, you know, anomalous for a number of reasons, um, you know, there, there just doesn't seem to be the, the sort of pushback that you might expect. The sort of pushback that a lot of reformers told us was coming in 2020 if crime went up. So why was the Chesa Boudin recall anomalous from your perspective? Because maybe I'm naive, but I thought it was certainly worth celebrating. Admittedly, I'm sure there are a lot of kind sure. of specific factors there with the Asian community kind of pushing back. But um, I'd be curious for you to elaborate on why you think that was anomalous. Yeah, I mean, I think well, one obvious reason is that the recall mechanism isn't sort of you know ubiquitous throughout the country. Right. It's, it's 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 not something that's available. It's not a lever that that we can pull. And we saw that um, uh, Gascon recently survived his recall. Right. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. In, in the same state. And so what I think happened in in San Francisco and, and my colleague Charles Lehman, who's also just brilliant and so lucky to be working with him, he makes this point in a in a piece he wrote after the the Boudin recall, which is basically that like. If you look at San Francisco, what was unique to it was that there was an incredible amount of disorder that not only that unlike serious violent crime was not as concentrated within the city of San Francisco. So if you paid, you know, six million dollars for a house, you were still walking out of your house to get into your car in your driveway and someone would be, you know, uh, defecating uh, across the street from from your home, right? This is something that even the politically active and well-to-do were forced to confront on a daily basis. It, you know, in most cities, the, the sort of biggest problem that you worry about with respect to progressive prosecutors is serious violent crime, shootings, homicide. Um, San Francisco never really had a huge homicide or shooting problem. Um, what it did see, though, was serious disorder just go completely out of control, but it wasn't as geographically or demographically concentrated as the violence problem tends to be in a lot of cities where, you know, the people who kind of are responsible for the bulk of the political decisions get to kind of ignore it because they don't deal with the consequences on a day to day basis. In San Francisco, though, you know, um, between the homeless encampments and the mentally ill and drug addicted, you know, violence and all of that. I mean, that was touching literally every single part of that city. And so I think there was a sense of of just people having had it um, that that probably isn't going to be replicated very often in very many parts of the country. Yeah, I was out there in the Bay Area in March, I guess it was. I didn't speak in San Francisco proper. I, I flew into the airport. I spoke both in Berkeley and then uh, down the valley in Mountain View and Palo Alto area. But in Berkeley, literally like I think a block and a half, no more than that from the hotel that I was staying at. And I was like right across the street from Berkeley's campus, like the nice part of Berkeley, was this like two block by two block town square. And there there must have been 250 to 300 homeless encampments, like literally just in, the, just in this town square. So I, I, I do agree with you that a lot of what's happened there in the Bay Area is, um, is sui sponte, I guess we would say, in, in, the, in the legal yeah. discourse. It's, it's certainly unique. But I want to kind of take it back to the book a little bit, because I have to imagine that the leading impetus, if I had to guess, for, for you writing this book now is was, was really the summer of 2020 and really all kind of the, the anarchic hell, if I can, um, you know, opine a little bit that was unleashed in the aftermath of, of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. I mean, I remember where I was. I was living in Dallas, Texas at the time. And that, that first weekend, 
I, I just felt the blood boiling under my skin. I was just so livid at just the wanton looting and destruction that I saw. I, I'd be curious what your kind of emotions were as you kind of started to process in real time, kind of that it was a very tumultuous time in America, obviously. COVID was new. George Floyd had just died, the rioting. What was going through your head at that time? Yeah, I mean, I, my biggest concern, and I had written a piece about this in the Washington Post, was that you know, the looting, the violence was going to be so counterproductive. I mean, I remember the riots in Ferguson and even in 2020, that city had not fully recovered from that damage. Watts had not fully recovered from riots that happened in the 1960s. Um, You know, LA was still very much scarred from the riots in the early 90s. Um, You know, I knew that the communities in which the damage was going to be concentrated were going to suffer um, lasting harms that were, were were not going to make anything better. That was my sort of initial concern. But I also just from experience understood that what this meant, you could you had the sense that 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 Floyd's murder was like a a straw that broke the camel's back, right? Like I and so I had this very clear sense that shortly after his death, we were going to see a radical leap leftward in the criminal justice policy space. And we were going to see levers pulled that we never would have imagined pulled, let alone pulled so quickly and in succession with so many other levers on the policy front, and that that was going to do really lasting harm. And this was something that I had been concerned with for years prior, right? I mean, you know, I, I've been writing in this space for for close to a decade now. And one of the things that I had been consistently seeing was, you know, um, just these these cases in which you had really heinous offenses committed by people who had you know 15 20 30 prior arrests you know 10 prior convictions and you know they were out on parole they were out on probation they were out on pretrial release you had the the the, the advent of the progressive prosecutor movement where you know that term was unheard of 10 15 years ago and now all of a sudden we've got nearly 50 million Americans living in jurisdictions with self-described progressive prosecutors there was just this very very it just felt like we were teetering on the edge before Floyd, and then that happens and and just pushes us over. And so I, I very much was kind of anxious in anticipation of what I knew was going to come, and that was a really, really massive crime spike. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, when when things blew up in 2020 on the crime front, I, I was not at all surprised, I, nor did I think that COVID was going to be, you know, the sort of main explanation, which was, you know, something that I did not expect to gain as much popular uh, um, uh, sort of ground as it did. I mean, you know, it was just such a strange argument, the idea that, okay, this pandemic happens, that causes the economy to, you know, um, uh, to, to, to get messed up a little bit. And then people are going to shoot each other in certain, <laughs> like that just doesn't make any, any sense, especially when, you know, the, the violence problem in the United States remained as geographically concentrated as it ever was. And COVID obviously was not geographically concentrated. The rest of the world didn't see huge violence spikes the way the United States did, even though COVID, you know, was was a global pandemic. Um, and and so it was just a really strange time. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I had sort of thought about writing a book along these lines prior to 2020. But when 2020 happened, yeah, I was like, OK, I have to hustle and, and get this out because, you know, there was really no one else kind of making this case outside right. of a few of my colleagues here at the Manhattan Institute. It was just, it just seemed like we had sort of taken the safety gains that we made over the 1990s and early 2000s for granted. And everyone just became uncomfortable with the infrastructure of a criminal justice system that would punish wrongdoing right. and that would, you know, police high crime uh, neighborhoods. 
And, you know, those benefits just were, were getting eroded. And that, that trend started way before 2020. I mean, you know, I, I think it's probably wrong to understand the crime spike of 2020, which continued into 2021 and in a lot of places is continuing now. I think it's wrong to see that as primarily a sort of new phenomenon. Let's take it to a quick commercial break. Again, we're joined this week by Rafael Manguel of the Manhattan Institute. Stay with us. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. So I want to pick up kind of where your last answer left off, actually. To me, the, the phrase criminal justice reform is not a particularly helpful phrase, to be honest with you, because it refers to such a wide range, a large swath of policies, things like the Soros-backed progressive prosecutor project, sentencing reductions, obviously police tactics, qualified immunity, no-knock warrants. I mean, it really refers to just a lot of stuff, for lack of a better term, in the criminal justice system more broadly. I'd be curious from your perspective, what specific policies that are kind of peddled under the banner of criminal justice reform you find to be most dangerous and why? Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right that the the that the term, you know, as as sort of generally understood and according to what its dictionary definition might be, you know, it it encompasses quite a lot. Um, but I think it's largely become understood to refer to policies that have two main goals. One is to lower the transaction cost of criminal behavior by making prosecution, uh, arrest, and incarceration less likely. Uh, and then two, by raising the transaction costs of law enforcement by um, making by, by erecting barriers to uh, you know making criminal arrests, uh, you know more paperwork, more uh, oversight, I guess is one word you could use for it. Um, you know, more restrictions on police power, et cetera. So you know, at the same time, you've had these kinds of uh, two forces pulling at opposite ends uh, of of you know society and, and pulling in opposite directions, I think tearing us apart in the middle in a lot of ways, and that's really um, what I think you know that that term is generally understood to to capture now. And so you know, it, I think I say this in the book. You know, it's it's obviously it's a term that could mean all sorts of things, right? Um, I think a lot of people in the 1990s, for example, understood the advent of CompStat and you know using data to inform police deployments as police reform. Um, right. But it's not something that people think of today when they hear those two words put together. They hear police reform, they think qualified immunity abolition, they think, you know, uh, restrictions on neck restraints, they think restrictions on, you know, no-knock warrants, et cetera. Um, and so I think the term is is really generally understood to refer to those two things, things that policies that, that will lower the transaction costs of, of committing a crime, bail reform, discovery reform, you know, um, uh, decriminalization efforts, uh, you know, uh, sentencing reform efforts, et cetera. And things that that raise the transaction cost of enforcing the law. No, that, that that's really well said, and it's 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 really helpful there. 
So one talking point that we hear, I think, from the other side of this debate over and over and over again, in fact, it kind of reminds me of when I was first getting started in Newsweek, you did a written uh, debate of the week with um, the the other Mark Levin, not the radio host, but the other Mark Levin, who at the time was still with Right on Crime at TBPF. I think he's moved on to a new organization. But one of the talking points I think we hear from kind of that side of this particular debate is just the, the frequent lamentation of you know, the much ballyhooed, uh, you know, the low level drug offender, right? We, we, and how they shouldn't be kind of in prison over and over again. But if I recall in your, in, in your essay for us in Newsweek now over two years ago, that's hard to believe. Wow. Um, you know, I think you have pretty compelling statistics to show that this just isn't the problem that that side kind of makes it out to be. So I'd be curious if you could talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think partly because of Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, you know, there's been this idea that has become much more widely adopted that our over incarceration, I'm using air quotes, even though no one can see me, <laughs> um, that that to the extent that the United States over incarcerates, it's largely a function of our criminal uh, justice policy with respect to drugs. Um, and that these individuals who get incarcerated for drug offenses are largely nonviolent offenders, and therefore their incarcerations are unjust. And this is just not true on, on many levels. I mean, for one thing, the vast majority of people incarcerated are not incarcerated primarily for drug offenses. If you look at our state prison population, which accounts for about nine out of every 10 prisoners in the US, um, only 14% of the state prison population is in primarily for a drug offense. The vast majority of them are in for trafficking significant amounts. Um, but but it's really important. I use the word primarily there because the way that our prison statistics are set up, they, people are categorized um, in terms of the offense category that they fall into. Um, they're categorized based on the offense that they've been convicted of that has the highest ceiling in terms of sentence. So if you are picked up with an illegal firearm and a kilo of cocaine uh, in your trunk, you're going to get more time for the kilo of cocaine under you know a lot of um, uh, state drug law uh, regimes than you will for the illegal firearm possession charge. And so even though you were convicted of both illegal firearm possession and uh, the drug charge, you're going to be listed primarily as a drug offender. So you know that 14% probably overstates the degree to which people are incarcerated solely for drug offenses because we know that some people were convicted of other offenses too but also you know plea bargaining is just a reality in our uh, society and so we have to understand that the conviction data that is reflected in our prison statistics often understates the conduct that was actually engaged in by the offenders right because people uh, you know the prosecutors will tend to either drop charges altogether or downgrade charges um, during the plea bargaining process. And so, you know, the the official conviction statistics often don't fully capture the criminal conduct that was actually engaged in. Um, but then we also have to a- account for the fact that these individuals have criminal histories, right? The average person leaving right. prison in the United States has more than 10 prior arrests and about five prior convictions. So the idea that we can just take a snapshot of the prison population and pretend that these are static categories is wrong. Criminals don't specialize, right? Someone who's in primarily for a drug offense today has likely committed non-drug crimes in the past and will likely commit non-drug crimes in the future. And a good portion of those non-drug crimes will be violent. Right. So the Bureau of Justice Statistics, for example, does a, um, a recidivist studies uh, that are longitudinal. They've done a few of these. They looked at cohorts released in 2005, 2008, 2012. Um, And for the ones that they've looked at over nine and 10 year periods, what they find is that more than 75% of people who are incarcerated primarily for a drug offense go on to be arrested for a non-drug crime. And more than a third will be rearrested for a violent 
non-drug crime. Um, so, you know, the idea that we can just consider drug dealers, you know, non-violent defenders is, is just also wrong. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's, we also just have to just appreciate that drug enforcement is largely a pretextual attack on more serious kinds of crime. Police officers, law enforcement agencies, they understand drug enforcement to be a tool through which they can target people largely engaged in other kinds of criminal offenses, which is one of the reasons why you see drug enforcement concentrated in higher violence areas. It's often used as a as a critique, in fact, evidence of of police racism, for example, that um, drug enforcement is um, disproportionately concentrated in low income minority neighborhoods, even though drug use is just as ubiquitous in higher income white neighborhoods. But this presupposes that at the root of drug enforcement efforts is a desire to reduce use, right? Um, which is not necessarily true. If you have a high degree of violence associated with the drug trade in one area, it makes a lot of sense to deploy your resources disproportionately to that area, um, as opposed to places that does that don't have the same level of violence associated with the trade. Um, and so th- th- that's just one example of how, you know, um, how much nuance gets left out of this conversation, you know, um, especially with respect to um, racial disparities in terms of enforcement. I mean, you know, and and the drug war is, I think, sort of ground zero for that. I mean, you you hear a lot, for example, about the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. This is the federal legislation that established the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine, which is in modern times largely understood to be the most racist piece of legislation. You know, everyone sort of takes for granted that this was um, a primary mechanism of oppression uh, of the black community by law enforcement. But when you look into the history of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, what you'll see is that 16 of the 19 members of the Congressional Black Caucus co-sponsored the bill at the time. No kidding. Wow. Senate 97 to 3. There was a lot of support in the black community for a crackdown on the crack trade because they were dealing disproportionately with the downside risks associated with that trade. I mean, you know, in 1990, I think it was, William F. Buckley um, debated Charles Rangel on PBS wow. and where Buckley was actually arguing for drug legalization and Charles Rangel, black congressman from East Harlem, suggests at one point during the debate, life in prison for crack dealers. Wow. So, you know, the idea that there wasn't a lot of support in this uh, on this front from within the black community is also wrong. And so there, there's just so many ways in which we have kind of failed to appreciate really important nuance in these debates, which I think is sort of a root cause of the bad policy that we've enacted. And you know, one of the things I really wanted to get across in the book is that these policies are not only bad ideas. Um, they're the, the reason that they're bad ideas is because they're they're kind of based on incorrect assumptions, right? You know, we, t- we talked a little bit about the mass incarceration idea, you know, the, the the sort of idea that we systematically deny second chances, which of course is not true in the United States. You know, that's just purely evident by the number of prior arrests and prior convictions of the average person in prison by the fact that only 40% of state felony convictions actually result in a, a post-conviction prison sentence. Um, so we have these bad ideas that are the result of, of, of uh, poor assumptions. But what I really, really wanted readers to understand was that these ideas are pushed in the name of communities that are disproportionately affected by the costs associated with our enforcement regimes. And it is true that those costs associated with law enforcement are not evenly distributed, but neither are the costs associated with crime. And that's what I really wanted to get readers to understand is that 
the people who stood to bear the brunt, the downside risks associated with decarceration, associated with depolicing, are the very communities that reformers say they want to help. Right. So if you care about disproportionality, and this is a point I make in the the op-ed responding to Soros's piece, right? He 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 sort of own the one data point that he actually brings to bear in that piece is that you know, black Americans are five times as likely the, compared to white Americans to be incarcerated. And that that, you know, is sort of a problem that he says um it just manifestly proves that that you know there's injustice afoot. And my response to that is like, well, why are you, I understand why you're uncomfortable with that disparity, but why is there no mention of the disparities in victimization, which are at the root of the enforcement, right? Like New York City, where I live, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims every single year for which we have data. This is every year going back to 2008 and probably before that. A minimum of 95% of all victims are either black or Hispanic, almost all of them are males. That is one of the starkest, most persistent racial disparities in the criminal justice data sphere in New York. And you not don't hear much about it. But, you know, what that tells you is that when crime goes down, it's not rich white communities that benefit, right? I mean, you know, like it's, if you look at the homicide victimization disparities in the United States, they're much more pronounced than the disparities in uh, incarceration along racial lines. And so if we can find policies that work to reduce crime, um, we're going to disproportionately benefit the low-income minority communities that reformers say they really want to help, and vice versa. If we erode the policies and 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 undo the systems that have produced those benefits in the form of crime declines, we are going to disproportionately hurt the low-income minority communities that reformers say they want to help. I, you know, I'm really happy you mentioned that William F. Buckley fire line debate, which I'm going to have to go back and find somewhere on YouTube or, or I'll, I'll dig down on the interwebs and find it. But that's such a stark contrast, such a stark juxtaposition when you take that image that you just described for the listeners of, you know, William F. Buckley, this, you know, kind of, you know, well-coiffed Connecticut white man arguing for drug legalization, arguing against, you know, a, a black person from, I think, the Bronx, if I'm not mistaken, saying like, no, Harlem, 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 uh, saying, do not do this. And, you you know, you compare that to the rhetoric that you hear from like the Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ebram, Ebram X. Kennedy types today. And it, it really does make me wonder, maybe we'll, we'll get you out here on, on this question. Do people just no longer care about victimhood, about about who is suffering? I mean, have they just so warped themselves into kind of um, this disingenuous focus on incarceration rates where they just don't care? Are, are, are they naive to these very basic rudimentary statistics like this 95% statistic? Or I, I mean, how do you account for that, I guess? I think, I mean, I, I always try to find the best version of the people I disagree with and and argue against that. So I don't think it's that they don't care. I think either some people are just unaware or they sincerely believe that the costs outweigh the benefits. Um, Or a third option, and this is something I've heard a lot, is that they think you can produce the same benefits outside the criminal justice system or without the criminal justice system. So you often hear a lot about, well, if we just attack the root causes of crime, we wouldn't need cops and, and prisons. We can just keep uh, low-income minority communities safe. And the reason they're so dangerous is not because we're you know, failing to incapacitate repeat offenders, um, but it's because we haven't properly invested in these communities. And this is something that I anticipate in the book. And the, uh, the second half of the first chapter actually attacks the root causes argument. You know, w- one of the things that I highlight, for example, is that if in fact there was such a tight relationship between socioeconomic indicators and violence, which is you know the implication of that kind of argument, then we would 
see violence trends track with trends in socioeconomic indicators, and we don't. So in New York City, take 1989 and 2016, if you're asking why those two years, 1989 is the year before New York City peaked its number of homicides at 2,262 in 1990, and 2016 is the year before we hit our valley number of homicides, 292 in 2017. Look at the poverty rate in New York City. It barely changes. In fact, it moves slightly in the wrong direction. And yet homicides go down more than 90%. Um, what that tells you is that, hey, maybe we don't actually have to solve one of society's most intractable problems, one that's been a common denominator across human history uh, in order to keep people safe. Um, same thing when you look at unemployment, right? I mean, you, know, you had the Great Recession uh, in the country you know, between 2006 and 2010, the unemployment rate nearly doubles. Homicide rate, I think, declined 15% during that period. Um, you don't see homicide spikes during um, the Great Recession. You didn't see homicide spikes during the Great Depression. In fact, you saw homicides really increase in the United States in the 1920s, which is a period of economic boom and prosperity. Um, and so there, there just isn't a really neat relationship between these things. Um, and and so one of the things that I, I really wanted to get across in, in the early part of the book was that, look, you know, to whatever extent the kind of disinvestment that people like Nicole Hannah-Jones, I imagine, would um, uh, um, lament, uh, to the extent that that's associated with creating conditions that are more conducive to crime, um, we know from the literature that we can more quickly and more immediately and more efficiently reduce crime by having a properly operating criminal justice system, by giving police the authority that they need to do the job that they need to do to keep communities safe, and by having a system around those efforts that's going to back them up, right? So we see lots of communities where, you know, individuals have been arrested, you know, a couple of dozen times, and yet they're back out on the street. It's like, that tells you the cops actually doing a really good job of identifying who the chronic offenders are, but the system fails to do its job to 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 keep those people uh, off the street and hold them accountable and incapacitate them. And so, you know, it, it, for me, it's just having, you know, lived in in these communities, having family in these communities, having spent time in these communities, you know, the idea that we should just sort of take this gamble of like, hey, we're going to try and solve this problem that no one's ever been able to solve, by the way, right? I mean, how many trillions of dollars have we spent on anti-poverty programs since the 1950s? Too much. Um, to, to what avail, right? Uh, so, so we're going to suddenly figure out how to solve this problem and reduce crime at some point down the road. That just seems to me to be a non-starter when you know you have homicide numbers like we have in cities like Chicago and Baltimore and Louisville and Indianapolis. I mean these are cities that are seeing right. all-time highs or near all-time highs. Um you know something has to be done now to stop the bleeding and I think the tip uh, of the spear in that effort is going to be um the sort of traditional institutions of our criminal justice systems policing corrections um, prosecution. And um, right now, we're at a point in our country's history in which all of those things are being demonized, in which uh, the the ability of those institutions to do their job um, has been sabotaged. And, you know, we just need to reverse that trend. Um, and, I, you know, to me, the strongest argument for that is the racial equity argument. I mean, if you if you care about these communities, if you care about what life is like for people who don't have a choice, right? They can't just pick up and move to a safer place the way you or I could. I mean, you know, I'm the beneficiary of a family that, you know, albeit by the skin of its teeth, 
got up and left Brooklyn, New York in the mid-1990s and moved us to a Long Island suburb because crime was an issue. Um, but not everyone was that lucky, right? And, and they deserve safety too. And so, you know, that that's really who I wrote the book for, uh, to who I dedicated the book to. And, um, you know, I hope that the book can help change the conversation in that direction. Well, I hope so too. And I, again, I want to just plug the book and make sure that the listeners of this podcast check it out. It's called Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. And it's really kind of that last part, who it hurts most, that I think we've talked about here for the past five to 10 minutes or so. Very, very powerful stuff. So, you know, Raphael, I could have you on for, for hours. Uh, you're truly one of my favorites in this broader kind of right of center commentary space. So thank you so much for joining us this week and hope to chat with you very soon. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I look forward to coming back against it. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Thanks again to Raphael Mangual for stopping by this week. Really cannot recommend highly enough the work that he and some of his colleagues over at Manhattan Institute and City Journal are doing. Really go ahead and check them out. They are fighting upstream currents, not just in the broader culture, but really kind of also in the right of center space, which from my perspective over the past 20, 30 years, especially when it comes to criminal justice reform, well, really maybe over the last 10, 15 years, maybe in particular, has I think really just capitulated to a lot of kind of the same rhetoric that you hear from the left. There really is kind of a Soros Coke meeting of the minds on a lot of things criminal justice reform related. And I'm just personally so grateful as someone who cares a lot about enforcing the rule of law and law and order and public safety. I'm just so grateful for the work that Roth and some of his colleagues are doing there. I think it's really, really clever, actually, what he is trying to do there and trying to frame his arguments as kind of going through the lens of equity and almost racial justice. I don't want to speak for Roth, obviously. He didn't use that precise term, but that's really kind of sort of what he's doing, right? Talking about how 95% of homicides in New York City going over the last X years have been from the black and, and Hispanic communities there. I mean, put another way, if you know, if you meet a Black Lives Matter activist on the street near you and you were in one of these high crime areas, you would be well within your rights to ask the activist, well, tell me how you actually care about black lives if you are simultaneously in favor of shrinking the police force, of disarming the police force, of hampering the police force with all sorts of bizarre restrictions about where they can patrol, about the kind of warrants that that they can execute, let alone, obviously, the insanity of the Soros-funded progressive prosecutor project. But that really is kind of the ultimate tension here. And Rafa's colleague, Heather McDonald, has written prolifically on this. She has the, the statistics to back it up there. Again, God bless the work that Rafa and some of his colleagues are doing over there. Would really encourage you guys to go check them out. And please go ahead and check out his new book just out last month as well. So once again, thanks so much for listening this week. I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time.